When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other very interesting thing about delusions is that they, they're always encoded. They have a kind of encoded uh, meaning. They feel like communiques. Um, they're sort of smuggling in hopes and fears and, and, and they're quite performative in that sense. They're asking for an audience, whether that's from somebody, you know, a loved one or from the wider public. They're asking for interpretation. That was Victoria Shepherd on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. 
Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. And here at Psychologists Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. And we'll hope to see you there. I'm here with Jill to introduce an episode on rethinking delusions. I had the opportunity to talk with an author, Victoria Shepard, who had written a book called A History of Delusions, and it has a great subtitle, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and a Walking Corpse. And what I wanted to kind of share is that after I finished the recording with Victoria, we we just started talking about how history and mental health are often so siloed, right, that we talk about history like in a totally different world than we would ever talk about mental health. And she's sort of bringing together these two topics and in a really helpful way because it helps us to understand what is the history of how we've understood this presentation and how can history help us understand it better. Um, and this was also something that I discussed with Carl Eric Fisher in the episode on the history of addiction. That was episode 235. So I, I think I've gotten really interested in sort of how history of mental health plays into some of the mistakes that we currently make and, and how we can use history to better our understanding of the different kinds of things that we see in the field of mental health. Um, so and. One thing that is really striking about this conversation is that delusions are much more common than we might think, right? That we think of it as sort of this very extreme event that happens for people who are really sick. And actually, most of us can probably identify some form of delusional thinking. Delusions are defined as a fixed false belief. So Jill, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I think this, first of all, I found this episode absolutely fascinating. And that piece you just mentioned is what really, really struck me that, you know, admittedly, I've always thought about delusions as something that floridly psychotic people experience. And Victoria really reconceptualizes this as something that all of us may have a tendency to experience when we get hooked by a narrative in a really rigid fashion. And one of the things I was thinking about personally is I have a brother. I typically refer to him as my bad brother and my other brother as my good brother. This very narrow conceptualization, these unidimensional characters that they are. And my quote unquote bad brother is currently incarcerated. And, you know, I have a narrative about him being a bad person and a monster, and that's that. But interestingly, my other brother and my father have a very different idea 
about him, different from me, but also different from each other. So all three of us have different stories about our beliefs about this person. And all of our beliefs are pretty fixed, you know, pretty rigid. And we all think we're right. But how can we all be right and have three different stories? And it it just really got me thinking like, huh, I guess in some ways this is kind of a form of delusion. And what you talk about a lot is the function of that, that typically these delusions, even the ones that are, I think I'm Napoleon or I'm made of glass or the ones that seem more bizarre, that you can trace all of them to some sort of function. And of course, for me, you know, this is how I feel safe and secure in the world to create a story about this person being bad and being dangerous and therefore deciding to be estranged and have no contact. And, you know, it just really got me thinking like, huh, do I need to rethink this fixed belief? Is there some cost here? And, and I don't have an answer to the question yet, but it just got me thinking about this in an, in an entirely new way. And you even, you know, a little bit into the episode, you even challenge listeners to do the same. And I just, I found it fascinating. Well, I love that conducting these interviews and listening to one another's interviews, Jill, has such an impact on our own lives. And it's something that we, you and Debbie and I talk about regularly that, you know, the lessons that we learn through the guests that we have and the books that we read really can change the trajectory of how we live our daily lives. And I love that you're sort of absorbing some of these messages and kind of questioning your own stories about your brother. And so we, I do hope that listeners stay tuned all the way to the end for various ideas on how to relate to delusions in others and delusions in ourselves. And, and Jill, I'm curious to hear where more reflection on your story about your brother, where it lands you. So we hope you enjoy this episode. I'm here with Victoria Shepard, who has produced scores of documentaries for BBC, including the 10-part series with the title, A History of Delusions. And today she's here to talk with us about her new book, A History of Delusions, with a terrifically intriguing subtitle, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband and a Walking Corpse. Welcome, Victoria. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about delusions and the history of delusions because the importance of context in mental health has become increasingly recognized. But what most people, even those of us in mental health professions, don't often recognize is that even our understanding of delusions should be understood within context. And that's where your new book really offers a huge eye-opening opportunity. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll start, you know, I'm, I'm a social historian. Um, and I think that the way I found became a kind of a detective of delusions historically, which is how I, how I see myself. Uh, start, I was researching something completely different for another history of science. It was the, the history of the heart. Um, and I came across, so this is the, the first part of the subtitle, I came across a reference which jumped off the page to me, which was a reference to King Charles VI of France, who's a 14th, 15th century king, who this little, little subtitle, this little uh, doodle in the margins of whatever I was reading jumped out saying that he had thought that he had turned into glass. Uh, and I immediately stopped what I was doing. <laughs> I did finish that series, but uh, a bit slower. Uh, and I thought, eh, what, what's this? A king, a medieval king uh, who thought he turned into glass. And I, I started digging into that. Um, he was, he was, uh, publicly dealing with the Hundred Years' War with England. Um, so he had a you know, full-time, full, full job on there. But in, in his private life, he was uh, you know, completely consumed with anxiety that he, would, that he would smash if he came into contact with, with any hard 
objects. And he was reported that there are chronicles by Pope Pius II um, about his life. And he was reported to have wrapped himself in blankets to stop himself um, from smashing. And whilst it's a kind of absurd scenario, it's ridiculous, um, there was something else in it that was the life and death. You know, this is, here's this king. The courts of Europe were laughing at him because, you know, because of, of his belief that he turned into glass. So it got me thinking about, you know, the jeopardy of that. What, what was his delusion, his delusional belief, his fixed false idea, which is the definition I use of, of delusions, his single fixed false idea about himself? What was that doing for him? Because it must have been doing something pretty important to, to risk ridicule across Europe. Um, and you know, it's no less than life and death to him. He clung to it. Uh, and, and that seems to be true across many different delusions across centuries. People cling to them. They, they are serving some kind of protective function, I argue in the book. Um, and I, and it does stand up. So as I, as I kind of extended my research into other delusions across other centuries, um, people started sort of speaking to each other, these individuals, and, and there seemed to be, functions in delusions and what they were offering people in terms of protection and, and help with, with their difficult realities that were repeating again and again. So helping you to reconcile um, irreconcilable conflict that came up again and again, simply a, an alternative reality that helps you deal with a really, really wretched reality and so on and so on. So it, it all started with, with this glass king um, and of course, glass, you know, talking about the social context, another thing that keeps cropping up is, is technology, new technology of the day. And again and again, delusions seem to peg themselves to new technology. And at the time, um, glass was a relatively new substance. Um, it came from heating sand until it became transparent. And so it's kind of alchemical, extraordinary material that's transparent, but also breakable. And so you can start to see, you can start to understand what seems completely absurd starts to make some kind of sense. It's a kind of distance regulator, um, potentially. It's a kind of way of telling the world how to treat you, saying, look, I'm, I'm, stay away, <laughs> stay back, uh, sort of social anxiety expression, stay away, but also I'm precious. I'm, I'm kind of magical. I'm a treasure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, there's, there's lots in it that is both of its time with each of these 10 characters that I talk about in the book, but also again and again, you know, the patterns and the functionality um, echoes all, all over the place. And so I do think the context is potentially helpful. Yeah. And I think you're pointing something out that most of us don't really, again, even in the field of mental health, don't think too much about, which is the functionality of beliefs. And so I do a lot of couples therapy and this often happens where, you know, one person like really has a strong belief and the other person really can't understand why. And if we sort of get curious about the functional, the functionality of that belief, we get much further in connecting and understanding and joining one another than we do by trying to just disprove it. And you make this point in your book, which I think is such an important one, that our tendency, our impulse is to want to prove somebody's fixed belief that has evidence contradicting it wrong. And you say that that's kind of the wrong way to go about it. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit yeah. about that, because you make this point again and again in your book that we can we can learn about people, about 
you know, time and place, but also the individual themselves by really listening deeply to the delusion. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, it's certainly given me a lot more compassion for other people because, you know, as you say, the one thing that's true about delusions is that, that logic will not, we know about this from conspiracy theory, right? Which is, you know, very current. Logic isn't going to touch the sides with it. Logic's never going to get anywhere. Um, why is that? Well, what, what you know, again, the functionality of it, if, if it seems to be that there's often a kind of scaffolding um, that it's offering people, a protective scaffolding, this belief, and that's why people will cling to it. And the reason for that, I mean, the, the other very interesting thing about delusions is that they, they're always encoded. They have a kind of encoded uh, meaning. They feel like communiques. Um, they're sort of smuggling in hopes and fears and 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 they're quite performative in that sense. They're asking for an audience, whether that's from somebody, you know, a loved one or from the wider public. They're asking for interpretation. And, um, and I think that that's what sort of really started to give me a real sense of compassion for what we're all trying to do when we navigate difficulties in our lives. We all really want to be worthy of that, don't we? To be worthy of interpretation, to be worthy of kind attention. And we don't get much of it, most of us. And some of us get absolutely none of it. Certainly some of the characters from past women in the past, I think probably had even less than most of the men in the past. And so there's this sense in which you're engaging. When, when a delusion is presented to a person, I'm made of glass or I'm Napoleon or whatever, whatever it is, or my husband's been murdered and swapped for a double or Whatever it is, it's it's it has a there's a kind of thriller quality to it. There's an inherent mystery that's asking for the the audience to that belief. Of course, this is all unconscious. I'm not suggesting in any way that people are doing this um, cynically or consciously, but it's that's asking for interpretation. And I think that's the key to it. That um, if you look at it like that, and perhaps we could apply that to to ourselves. Um, if you look at some a partner or, or a, a loved one or colleagues fix false belief rather than arguing with them, you might consider just sitting with them, going a few steps towards them. I mean, some of the physicians from the past kind of understood this, even if they didn't write it down in these terms, that the only way really, ruses didn't tend to work. The only thing that tended to allow somebody to release a, a fixed false idea was if somebody stepped maybe a few, just a, a part ways towards it, played the game as it were, a little bit, met them halfway, and then it allowed people to kind of potentially let go. The only kind of indication I had that people did step away from their delusions or sort of put them down a bit was by somebody, yeah, in, engaging with it, you know, offering to to listen very simply, to give it attention and to interpret, to decode it and to try and find out what the hopes and fears and what seems completely crazy might be. And I think you can, you know, I think you can apply that to, to now and to relationships as, you know, live relationships that we're all engaged in. Yeah. And maybe even on a broader spectrum, and I want to step into this idea of broader conspiracy theories in just a second, but I think what you're offering is a really actionable tip that when somebody close to you or, or just an acquaintance even shares a belief that seems ludicrous to you, rather than getting into a debate about whether there's logic behind it or not, to get really curious and join them and and really engage around the functionality. Like what, it, what is that belief telling you about them 
How is it helping them? How is it helping them make sense of the world? How can you understand them better? And approaching it from that perspective actually loosens the grip and lands you in a more collaborative position and a less sort of stuck position. And I think that that is just such a useful tip. And I will point out that I think that that is one of the major uh, superpowers of therapy, right? That most of the ways that most of the kinds of therapies that you find on the market, that is the general thrust is that the therapist is there to listen and to understand the function of what's going on with the patient, the client, um, to join them, to understand, you know, why it is that they believe what they do, not to fight with them. And there is something incredibly healing about that, you know, from depression where you sort of have these over overly negative beliefs to um, a straight, you know, delus- delusional belief that joining with somebody and being curious and, and sort of empathically uh, being with them is much more powerful than arguing with them or trying to prove them wrong. I, I really, be- I really have come to believe that if you pardon the pun, I have, I have. Hopefully it's not delusional. <laughs> I know, I know. This, it all gets very meta if you don't, if you're not careful with this. I was very pleased to go to my first book event, you know, to make sure it was, it was all real. It was all true. I hadn't, I hadn't dreamt the whole, <laughs> the whole book story. I mean, a really key, I, I started making a, a series for BBC Radio, um, this, which the book became a kind of, you know, the history, a history version of it. Um, and one of the key pieces of research, which, keeps you humble in this topic came out of Baltimore in 1991, which was the first time that they'd ever asked the general population about delusional thinking. Um, they just never asked. So the only people who'd ever been categorized or diagnosed, um, were people with very, very extreme beliefs, people, you know, uh, who thought they were Napoleon or, or who thought King George the third was, was, had stolen the throne from them or, but when they asked the general population uh, a random sample in 1991, they found. Well, I suppose we all know if we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, they found that we're all we're all delusional. We all have at least one fixed false idea about ourselves. That if we asked our loved ones, they'd say that's not true. Yeah, it kind of brings to mind beliefs like imposterism, like I'm not good enough. That everybody around you, uh, you know, might say what are you talking about? You've achieved this and that and the other thing, or, right. or nobody loves me when you're in close relationships, you know, that there's these sort of common beliefs that many of us get trapped in and nobody else buys them, but we hold them lightly enough and they're not interfering um, too much with our day-to-day lives. So they don't sort of count. But what you're saying is, and this study shows is that, you know, most of us have something like that, like a belief that really doesn't uh, go along with how other people see the world or see us. I think we all do. It took me a long time for the penny to drop about what mine was, but uh, <laughs> what are what are yours? Mine is a phobia, which is interesting because phobias operate very similar. They are delusions in a sense. So I've I had a, a long standing phobia of going in lifts, hmm. uh, elevators to to in the to the American. Uh, so again, it's a kind of it, the similarity there is that what I mean. I suppose it gives you. Knowing that we're, we all have skin in the game, right? That's the point. We, we we can't look at it as a kind of cabinet of curiosities as we go through these these ten stories that I have in the book. They are kind of stranger than fiction. They all have a kind of thriller mystery element to them, and they're extreme. But when you know that you're on that you're on that scale, you have a humility, and we all you know that we all have to sort of accept 
Um, and that these are just stories with the kind of contrast turned up. They're like technical versions of things that we, we all have. And when you start to realize that, it's unnerving. But it also gives you so much, it's very comforting because you can look at somebody, I mean, Robert Burton from the you know, 1500s or these people from hundreds of years ago. And there's a real sense of kind of handholding and, and um, of seeing how ingenious people are imaginatively and creating these alternative realities uh, or alternative. Yeah. The, the, I mean, they may not be healthy in the long run, um, but they're certainly survival sort of psychological survival strategies in the short term. And they're kind of ingenious. And so I was, I, I've sort of, after spending so much time, a lot of it in lockdown with these 10 characters, I've, I'm really, you know, I, I'm really kind of humbled and, and impressed by the ingenuity of their imagination. And therefore in all of us that we can find these strange ways of as i say sometimes it's 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 not healthy what you're saying right now is that delusions sometimes help people out with their complicated wretched realities but what's notable is that for many of the stories that you describe in your book and certainly this is true in modern life delusions can really cause a lot of problems it, it landed folks into insane asylums where they were locked down for life and made them the laughing stock of you know their kingdom and so in what ways do you understand that delusions really help people who are in dire straits in some way or another? Well, I came to see it very crudely in three very clear functionalities that have continued to repeat. So the, the, the kind of the primer, the simplest mechanic example of that is, is, is the spate of people who thought that they were Napoleon, the Emperor Napoleon um, in the 1800s in France. And there, there were, I mean, literally tens of them, and this is the ones that were recorded. And this is after he died, who turned up at the big asylums in France, saying that they were Napoleon. Uh, France had been through, I mean, a catastrophic political and social century, if not more. Uh, and it's pretty, it's pretty clear what what that delusion is doing. It's giving people of low status, people with no feeling of agency about their life, or a desperate. Yeah, feelings of impotence. You know, there they are. They they take on the costume of the most sort of powerful at the time icon of kind of self-made um, power and autonomy. So that's the sort of simplest way in which it's clear that it was serving a, a protective function. It was just giving yourself rather brilliantly and rather simply power that you didn't have in in a, in in the common sense reality that everybody else accepts. The other very clear one um, is allowing is I mean what it's what it shows the second sort of category, which is helping you to deal with irreconcilable conflict. It seems as though, and I'm sure you you must come to this every day, but that we all seem to find it incredibly difficult to live with with conflicting feelings, nebulous threats, but but particularly conflicting feelings. And so I have a, a, a character in my book called James Tilly Matthews, who was a, a tea broker in 18th century London, who taught himself, he kind of got in with an intellectual circle who sort of adopted him. And he ended up on a boat going to revolutionary France with Priestley, all these uh, public figures. Um, and suddenly there he was a kind of self-styled diplomat just as the revolution was kicking off and he was trying to uh, work with this deputation to to stop the revolution. Of course, quickly 
became you know got himself into the hottest water you can imagine where the, the english thought he was a spy the french thought he was a spy everybody everybody had a reason to kill him it's amazing that he he didn't uh, wasn't killed under the guillotine and he was kicked back to england where he lived in poverty with his wife and child in Camberwell, which maybe your, your US listeners may not know, but it's a, it's a, actually it's quite gentrified now, but at the time it was a very uh, poor area of South London. And so that kind of reversal of fortune, as well as the kind of conflicted political scene that was very, you know, where who was in the right and who was in the wrong would flip on a sixpence Um and his out of this was born uh, his extraordinary delusional belief that um, there was a gang, a kind of Dickensian, proto-Dickensian gang on the streets of London who were using a contraption called an heirloom, what he called an heirloom, and it was uh, using magnetic forces to influence the government to uh, bring revolution so the magnetic rays would go from the heirloom um, into Parliament and and uh, give them revolutionary ideas. And he he goes into the Houses of Parliament at Westminster and starts screaming at Lord Liverpool and his government, and he's hauled out and arrested and put into an asylum. So again, you have the technology; you had lots of physical forces were being discovered. So again, like with glass, you have kind of the new understanding of of uh, invisible forces or. Or new new technologies emerging, and his delusion is kind of pegged onto that. But anyway, it's a conspiracy theory. He was he was called the first paranoid schizophrenic, and it's a it's a paranoid conspiracy. But you can see what it's doing. It's he, you know he's creating this very simple plot, whereby you know these this gang of villains are trying to do are trying to overturn uh, the british government and they need to be stopped and uh, you know everybody needs to get on board and it, it turns what's an incredible soup of conflicting and messy politics and and humiliation and it's the murkiest thing you can possibly imagine he turns it into a very very simple conspiracy theory with with the good and the bad and so Again, it's a simplification, a dangerous simplification when you can be, right, with conspiracy theory. But you can see what it's doing for him. Right. I think this comes up so often in close relationships where, for example, if you have new parents and they're both exhausted and stressed out and overwhelmed with all of the stressors that are new and confusing and chaotic and one of the things that's very easy for the mind to do is to just assign all the villainy to the partner. Well, I'd feel so much better if my partner was helping more. And of course, that might be an important part of the complicated story, but it's just one part. And yet the mind goes there almost exclusively in a lot of cases. And it's an interesting, I think, Mm -hmm. um, more subtle take on what it is that you're describing, which is, you know, in a time of chaos and pain and overwhelm, our mind wants a simple story and explanation. And, and so delusions are sort of that taken to a very extreme level. I think that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I think that's absolutely beautiful and, and, and true because that, that conflict, you know, you can apply it to a very, I mean, it's, it's a seismic moment having a baby. It may not be revolutionary France, (laughs) but it's, you know, it feels like it, (laughs) doesn't it? It really does. It really does. Um, So I think, you know, cognitive dissonance and all of those things, I mean, how we, how we kind of become more aware in our own lives, what history can kind of show us about 
I don't know if it's being able to accommodate ambiguity, ambivalence. Um, it's a bit you, it's a bit me. It's, it's hard to say. How can we kind of train ourselves and our society to be able to hold conflicting things and accept, accept that it's not simple? Um, I think, I think James Tilly Matthews, it's a kind of daring do. It's an, it's a sort of incredible story, but it is a kind of, um, lesson about that, about the dangers. And he had the dangers of it's, so it's protective. You know, you can see why you can see how ingenious his mind was. And he wasn't kind of raving mad in inverted commas at all. He was in fact, quite the opposite, you know, but he never, ever let go of this belief in, in, um, in the conspiracy theory, but he spent his whole time in, in the Bedlam hospital, um, I don't know, is Bedlam a, a term in the US? Yeah, you know, yeah. Just a, a, for, chaos. For, for chaos, right. Yeah. So that's where that comes from. Uh, the, the Bethlehem, the Bedlam Hospital, which was this very chaotic asylum in South London where he spent the next sort of 40 years of his life. Right. Um, so you can see, but he came the kind of, he was sort of the father there, you know, people came to him and he was a brilliant draftsman. He he um, he drew his conspiracies Um and with these characters and this other world, you can look at them. Anyone can look at them online, actually. The Welcome Collection, two L's, um, which is a great big kind of medical uh, repository of medical writing and drawings. Anyway, they're all online. They're they're worth a look because they're, you can really travel into his mind, see what he was seeing. Yeah. He draws the heirloom and so on. But you can see that he'd simplified the threat. He'd organized his enemy. He'd organized his enemy. That's how that I spoke. I think that's the key phrase that you can apply to yourself as a warning. Am I, am I just, is this neater than it is accurate? Am I just organizing my enemy here? I love that. I love that as a tip to sort of, you know, check your own story. Like when it gets too simple uh, in a complicated situation, it's an important time to maybe zoom out and look for the more nuanced version of the story. And so what's the third kind? So there's sort of the first, uh, the first way that delusions can be helpful is to help us feel more important when we've been made invisible and sort of been confronting major injustice and have no way to sort of stand up for ourselves, that delusions can help give us a sense of greater importance in the world, mm. that they can organize us, organize chaos in, in this uh, way that helps us manage overwhelm and uncertainty. And then what's the third way? So so that again comes back to the king, uh, the, 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 when it's a metaphor. So you sort of melt into the object. So becoming glass, again, You'll use glass is just is still. I mean, you know, I have had a few people contact me. He, a producer who you know who said he, oh, he's actually it's funny. I, I thought my legs had turned to glass at one point, even though of course glass isn't new. It still has, um, and again we go back to the com- the kind of um, ambivalence. It's a, it's a amazing has amazing qualities. I can't think of any other material that has them that can that is both fragile but brittle. Um, beautiful but breakable and it can embody and hold contradictory um, qualities and so it's still even hundreds of years later something that um, that speaks to us it certainly spoke to me it made the hair on the back of my neck that's what got me into the whole sort of topic in the first place because I just knew I could just feel from fairy tale slippers you know the glass slippers and it, it still has a charge to it 
um, so they overlap. You know, I think I think what glass, but you essentially that you use you become you become something. Your delusion is that is a bodily one that you have become, you know, a wolf or you've but you've become something. It's a somatic idea. And it's almost like offering a metaphor to explain to the world what's going on internally at an emotional or sort of more gut level, that right. it's a way to communicate. And and that one, you know, the kind of social anxiety that I, I feel, it, it's even more um, potent as a, as a as a disorder, if you like, now, because it's, it's you know, we're population, we, we all live in smaller and smaller spaces. Um and the idea of, of of it being a distance regulator, a delusion like that, and I think that would not just be glass, but glass is a very kind of easy way to into that. You can sort of it's t- it's telling people to, as I said, to sort of stay back, but yeah. also asking for admiration to an extent, asking to be to be tr- treated well and to be seen as precious. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the other thing that came out of it, it's part of the, the first element, the the kind of. Uh, dealing with just a really wretched existence, I came across again and again how powerful humiliation, a reversal of fortune, people who humiliated, delusions come out of humiliation again and again and again. I'd say probably that word uh, would be at the back of more than any other as as a kind of trigger for a delusion. And it's really set me thinking about just how strong that is um, when it happens to you that f- being humiliated I mean, i'm sure there's kind of evolutionary real- reasons for that in terms of being part of society and so on although it's interesting because delusions do challenge that because you would think that we all want nobody wants to be embarrassed nobody wants to go against you know we have this drive to kind of not go against the crowd not be humiliated and yet a delusion often comes out of humiliation, but it it involves making these kind of public declarations that go against the public, you know. And maybe the the function of that is to regain some agency because often the initial humiliation is done without our consent, without our control, without any influence from us. But the delusion is maybe in a sense a way to regain some of that agency, even if the humiliation is sustained, at least you have more control over it. And there's something I think very inherently um, human about that desire to have some agency over how things go. That's really interesting that you're kind of replaying it, but with you in in charge of it. So you're kind of rerunning the humiliation. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that, but I think that's right. I think that's right. There's a, because they seem to be at odds. They seem to, it seems to go against this drive that everyone talks about to, to, um, to stay with the common sense reality. It's enormously brave, reckless, hard to understand why you would break that, why you'd put your head above the parapet. Yeah. Uh, and and that 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 I think I think there's I think there's a lot in that. That powerlessness again is a really toxic <laughs> sensei. We don't want to feel yeah. we'll feel anything rather than feel humiliated or powerless, right? Yeah. But it does get to this question. I mean, the, the whole conversation about delusions as a fixed false belief supposes that 
somebody is right and somebody is wrong about whether a belief is false. And so it gets, there's this question, and I think it's inherent throughout your book and, and various points you make it explicit, but like who gets to decide what is a delusion versus what is not? And I think that really does get to some controversy that is very timely, which is um, like, for example, I don't know if you've heard of the term mass formation. Uh, and if no. listeners haven't heard of it, it's defined as when mob influence leaves an individual with disturbed thoughts and perception and unable to fully distinguish what's real from what's not. And this idea of even the existence of mass formation is pretty controversial. There have been some prominent voices that have been in the news lately with regard to COVID mm. and folks believing that the pandemic is more of a psychosis that's the result of this mass formation right. than it is a reality. And I don't necessarily want to get into that per se, but I do think it gets to this underlying question of who gets to decide whether a belief is false or not. And you can look back in history, for example, you know, when are you considered a prophet versus a mad person? So this comes up in religion all the time. I think certainly in terms of, you know, I have one character in my book, Francis Spira, who was caught up in the counter-reformation um, in Italy, um, Italian lawyer. You can look at his delusion. that he, His delusion was that he was damned for all eternity, that he, God had kind of come to him and, and told him that he was damned to hellfire. Um, and he's he starved, reported to have starved himself to death, to have kind of negated himself and, and just refused food um, because his his belief that he was damned. And you very quickly get to the with you know with any what you can't help you can't help but see that with re- one person's religious belief is another person's delusion, <laughs> right. and, that, and and it's incredible. It's you know that one's been fought out. You know the Reformation, the Counter Reformation was people burning on on pyres all over Europe um, is an extremely violent um, dramatization of that, but it's still true, isn't it? And it's the one area that, that you know, we can't, you know, you can't say with any clarity that, uh, well, some people would say that all religion is delusional, right? But, right. But, that uh, might be like a, a mass, a, a mob belief. Some people might say that, but, but we're not we're not medicating. Theirs. We're not medicating no. those delusions. No, we're, we're not. We're allowing them to be in and supporting them. Right, and so you know that's not even close to have been. We haven't unpicked, and maybe we shouldn't. I mean, that's the that's the other element. You know, the the should it be cured question mark that that runs through all these stories, all the way back to ancient Greece. You know, and I think, like I mentioned, ruses. This idea that you can kind of trick people. That physicians would sort of say, well, "You think you've already died?" I have a, a late, another French woman who th- thought she'd uh, already died. A lot of it's important to say that a lot of these um, case studies come from France just after the revolution, because that's when delusions as a kind of um, discrete subject were being categorized and researched for the first time. There were these new great big asylums that that grew up in Paris, um, and that's when they were really you know, trying to create a taxonomy of, of delusions. And they wrote down, they listened to these um, men and women uh, and they made copious notes, people like Capra, uh, and and they created, but there's still, still kind of principal delusion types like delusions of doubles, um, erotomania, the delusion that somebody of higher status is in love with you. That's my favorite one. <laughs> right. I mean, it, that's, yeah, that's um, Madame. They all have these pseudonyms because, of course, they're they're, they're poster girls 
usually post to girls, sometimes post to boys for for these doctors' papers, which announce these delusion types to the world, and so they suddenly become Madame X or Madame Madame M, who thought her husband had been spot for a double. And you kind of my my job has been to try and find the real the real story, what what traumas or events had happened to them behind these kind of pseudonyms. And, you know, you find their real name and it's quite exciting. Louise, Madame M was really called Louise. (laughs) But yes, the the erotomania is a particularly dangerous and kind of um, timely or rather kind of 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 this sort of modern era uh, disorder um, because it's like stalking, it manifests like stalking. Um, so, um, Leia Anna Bay, who's the, the character, she's in the 19, in the 1920s, but she becomes convinced from Paris that, uh, George the fifth of, of England is in love with her. And she travels. I found out that she'd actually been dumped by her lover. So she'd, she'd really seriously experienced some humiliation, um, and her delusion springs up that that he's in love with her. So it's an interesting one because it's um it says it kind of denies all responsibility for your behaviour. It's George V. He's he's you know he's the one who's in love with me. I'm not stalking him, but of course she she goes to to Buckingham Palace and stands outside and looks waiting for the curtains to twitch to give her a message to say come and meet me you know Victoria Station. Um, so it's it's kind of. You can see what 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 the, what the mind is doing because it's it's disowning agency and responsibility, and also, but it's also, you know, creating love for yourself, it's making you the heroine of your story. But of course, it's potentially extremely dangerous because it won't take any responsibility for your actions. It, it um, and so so many of these delusion stories are kind of compelling and fascinating, but. It's, you have, they have to be taken very seriously. You know, I, I was very, I'm very aware and I hope that I have um, treated them all. They're not kind of um, whimsical, weird, curio stories. There's, at the heart of them, they're, they're understandable. I have come to believe that they're all understandable from a psychological level. But some of them are real, um, there's real warning and there's real menace uh, as well, they, they can be a danger to the person and to others. So, I take them seriously <laughs> yeah. as much as I'm fascinated by them. Well, and I think you really do. I think more than we have in history, take them seriously because you're so curious about the the function and and sort of the the, the cause and sort of how they're serving the person. Um, and you're really understanding it in in context, which I think is so important. And, and I think just to get back to this question of like who gets to decide what's a delusion yeah. and what's not, I think you throw some question into that, which is, you know, that what looks like a straight delusion and, you know, kind of crazy uh, at the on the superficial level can really be understood in context as making a lot of sense. And so, again, I think this is a cue to us in the mental health field and just in the world at large, that when somebody says something that feels or seems crazy to, to just, you know, engage that curiosity. And I think that that can be a very actionable thing that we can do that is very healing and, and more positive in the world. To, I also wanted to kind of follow up with this question of the neurological causes of delusions, because the way that we're talking about it, it seems very like, you know, psychologically driven, but you write 
and I'll quote from your book, that delusions sit at the intersection between neurology and psychology and different causes frequently coexist within the same individual, overlap and fuse. And so I think an important point that you make in the book is not that delusions are simply a, a you know, manifestation of something that helps us in a chaotic, difficult time in our lives, but also that it can coexist with biological causes. And, and because you're drawing from, you know, way back in history, we often don't have any strong evidence for the biological causes, but certainly we know today um, that when brain scans are done of folks with, you know, major psychosis, that we often can see some brain damage. And yet that doesn't negate the fact that those false beliefs can can make sense if we listen deeply. Yeah. And it's a real challenge as a historian, but I've, I've turned it, <laughs> I've, t- I've come to see it as, as probably the most interesting uh, grit in the book, uh, and the most, the most potentially kind of th- the thing I can learn from most, or we can all learn from most, which I, I think it's best exemplified in Madame M. So she's a woman in, in 1920s France. Well, actually, it was during the First World War. She, she becomes a case study in the, in the 20s. But during the First World War, she, she turns up at a police station saying that her husband's been murdered in exchange for a double. So, so she, she develops a delusion of doubles that her husband's been um, substituted and her children have been um, substituted and abducted and substituted. Um, and it's, it's an extremely kind of, it's like an Edgar Allan Poe short story of kind of people being, yeah, having their identity stolen, kind of Frankenstein like and being had operated on to change their identity and so on. So it's a very clear kind of psychological. Yeah, I mean, I, I interpret, I put a psychodynamic lens on it, very kind of hands up. I kind of, I do do that um, throughout throughout the book. And you can see perfectly well why it turns out her children have, um, she's unhappily married probably. That's, the inference is she's very unhappily married. Uh, her children have died in infancy. She's had several children die in infancy, as well as the First World War. So you can start to understand on a psychological level very clearly why it would be easier to deal with the idea that they're not dead, that they've been substituted, um, or that you, not that you really don't like your husband. Um, it's that he's not your husband. He's been he's been uh, substituted, right? The psychodynamic uh, lens makes sense, and and uh, I, I think it stands up. Um, but then you know you learn that. Uh, dementia with Lewy bodies or it's the clearest uh, delusion of doubles has the kind of clearest relationship to front cortex neurological brain damage of any of the delusions that I found and uh, it, you know I know somebody a friend of the family who who had this particular form of dementia and, and essentially it disrupts the recognition set, set part of your of your brain um, and you so you somebody is familiar but you don't know who they are and your left brain uh, I believe anyway, but not neurologist, but um, steps in with with the kind of ex- ex- explicable narration that says, oh, well, they've been swapped. They're, they've been substituted. They're a double. Um, and you can see, as you say, you can see that on brain scans. So how do I, you know, I have to then sit with these two truths. Um, and so I do believe, you know, we'll never know whether Madame M also had some kind of right front recognition center of her brain damage. We, we can't know. Um, so it will always be mysterious. What the, was, was there any brain damage? Um, 
or was it all psychological or what, what's, or is it both? Um, and there's something for me, there's a kind, there's a kind of ambivalence or ambiguity that I have to sit with, <laughs> but I actually, I think that's right. I think it should be uncomfortable. We can't know these people are mysterious. Um, we can find little fragments. We can start to get insights and into understanding what their reality was like and therefore why they created an alternative one, but we can't solve it. We can't call it one way or the other. And so in a way it's a good regulator for me to know that the neurology and the psychology are kind of in, dancing with each other and it's, it's, it's mysterious, right? We won't, we yeah. won't solve it. <laughs> I think we, we often can't solve it. Even, I mean, the brain is so mysterious, even with modern technology, there's still so many things that we don't understand. But what I'll say is, and, and this is just a hypothesis, but I, I do think that neurology plays a huge part for, for many people who, who have brain disorders um, or traumas in, you know, perceptions that are not linked up with reality. Where I think it turns into delusion is the, the, the story that we make about it. It's sort of like if you have a visual hallucination because you haven't slept for days and days, that can happen. But I wouldn't call that a delusion. But when it becomes a more fixed story that we hold on to, then it becomes a delusion. And then I think there's something often to interpret there about why that story is helping to either make sense of the world, to re-empower you, to um, help you feel some, you know, some sense of coherence in a chaotic world. And so I think, again, you know, that neurology plays a role, plays a huge important role in delusions and that we can sort of help people more if we look for the story that the brain then makes from a perception and understand how it's serving an individual. And again, you know, there's sort of like such a range of severity of this, but I think, you know, my new couple example is, you know, at one end and then somebody who feels that they're being persecuted in this way that doesn't, you know, fit with the reality that the rest of the people around them see is, is sort of like a different level entirely. But in both cases, the story that gets made by the brain based on, you know, a perception that's had in, in a difficult time is it's helpful to sort of disentangle that and understand the function that it's serving. Yeah. And absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's interesting because I've tried to track, to trace the very broadly, you know, how they've been seen, uh, you know, over the centuries. So delusions were seen as an imbalance of humors, part of melancholy, which kind of what we'd call depression, sort of. Then it became demonic possession, pretty much. You know, that, that was it for hundreds of years. And then it became, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels as though it did swing very far into saying it was all, it was organic brain. Uh, the, the, the explanation would, would be in, you know, brain damage, uh, malformation of the brain, so on and so forth. And I feel swinging a bit back, you know, to, to say that we've thrown a lot of the psychological stuff away and we need to, you know, we need to redress the balance. I totally agree. And, and what I'll add in there is like, for example, if, so I have a couple of, I've had a couple of patients with bipolar disorder and when there's a manic episode and there's manic style delusions 
those individuals can can really be dismissed for what they're feeling or, or thinking or believing in ways that are entirely unhelpful because there is a kernel of truth. It just has gotten um, blown up a bit. But by invalidating what that kernel of truth is, is really painful for the person gets them more entrenched because they're defending it even more strongly and really disconnects them from the people who love them and are concerned about them. And so I think dropping into that really uh, strong belief that all delusions are simply organic manifestations of something that's gone wrong in the brain can just from a very functional perspective be really unhelpful and really understanding and sort of bringing in like, yes, there is a, a brain piece that is important here that we need to integrate but there's also something more there's 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 the psychological piece the functionality piece that's really important and to be curious about that and not to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and and to really sort of embrace it like from a compassionate stance is really helpful yeah and to and to enter into the into the game of it i i, I don't mean a game in a to trivialize it but it, it does strike me that as a is it people want. I mean, it's interesting to look about it to look at it in terms of children. You know, we'll get down on our knees and play with a five year old child. You know, my five year old child. They, they engage in delusions all the time, don't they? Acting out an alternative reality, and we know that that's good and expanding of. We know that we'll get to some truths, or we'll. We know that that's an important thing for children to do to play with reality. And yet we, we somehow go, well, oh, no, you're over 18. You, you do th- th- that, that stops or you're, or you're not mature. You're not, you know, and maybe there's something in that. I don't, so that, you know, engaging with what people are trying to tell you in a, in code, in a kind of play code, um, they go, they, they are, they are sneaking. They're trying to tell you things that you need to interpret and you will, if you go halfway or you play, you play that game a little bit, you will allow them to um, be less vigilant or less, as you say, less strident. And there will be much more to understand than you could ever believe. I mean, it surprised me. You know, I, I didn't know as I was researching how that but every, in every single case, they were understandable, to, as you say, to a degree. In, in every single case, they had they had a very very clear and rather ingenious way of operating that was either temporarily or even quite long term helping them like a life raft or sort of scaffolding for their existence. And I met I met people. The series I made, I, I interviewed some contemporary people who, who'd experienced delusions, but they were through they they it was difficult to cast that because obviously people could only talk about them once they were no longer within them. Uh, and there was a lot of safeguarding issues to do with that, but we found some extraordinary people who were generous enough to to talk about it. And you know, again, all of them said. I mean, some of them had a very was very frightening the way it came on, but generally speaking, they talked about it like a life raft, or like you know, they found the same metaphors, like scaffolding, and and the idea that you just rip that down and go, that's that's not true became more and more clear that that was that wasn't the right approach it was it was true it was doing something it was holding them up and telling you something really important about what they were dealing with 
and who what they were worried about, what their hopes and fears and possibilities and, and so on. And it wasn't about just dismantling that. Yeah. Totally. Well, I so it sort of leaves me with an idea for an exercise that people listening in and, and that I'm I'm sort of as you're talking, kind of dipping a toe into, which is to get curious about your own beliefs, your own delusions in the sort of delusion light sense. <laughs> everyday delusions. <laughs> yes, your yeah. own everyday yeah. delusions and get curious about them and ask yourself, you know, what are what function are they serving? And, you know, why do you hold on to them even in the face of contradictory evidence? How might they be helping you even if it's just to understand yourself better or to communicate something important about yourself to the world around you, to people that are close to you? Or to, you know, maybe how are they helping to give you more of a sense of agency in a way that you feel really lacking in agency? To really ask that broad question about like, how are your everyday delusions serving you and in what ways? And I think getting curious about that can give you compassion for yourself and maybe also give you compassion towards others, other people as well. I really, I really believe that's true. It certainly happened to me. Um, and I was maybe more compassionate about myself, definitely. As I mentioned, you know, you, nobody, nobody can kind of be to stand back from this topic. And um, if you know what enemy you're organizing, then maybe you can, you can deal with your enemy, <laughs> whether that's trauma, whatever it is that you can do therapeutically or just to or, understand or your spouse. It. Or your spouse. <laughs> yeah, or your spouse. Um, yeah, fill in the blanks. There's, um, but, but, you know, you can actually do something about it. But it, you, if you want, you, you know, we're all organizing our enemy to just work out who the, who the real enemy is, because yeah. we all we all want a job to do. Well, that's the other thing about delusions; they kind of give you a job to do. Or I think quite naturally studious, and we all kind of want to get on and sort stuff out somewhere and deep in us, don't we? Yeah. And you know, having a delusion is a full time job. You've got, you've got, you've got to really work hard to do that. It's not it doesn't ha- you know it's 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 complicated mental gymnastics, and it and you have to stick at it. And so if you can kind of put all of that industry and analysis and kind of doggedness in the right direction with slightly more self-knowledge, then, you know, I think that could, could be really, really helpful. Totally. <laughs> I won't go into my own journey too deeply, but yeah, no, I think, I think, I think it, you know. Oh, if we had time, I'd love to hear more about it. <laughs> but one, one final thing that I'll say is that in the kind of therapy that I offer, acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the skills is to unhook from self-stories. And that's exactly what you're talking about is to like unhook. This practice of getting curious about the delusions is a practice of unhooking from that story and asking yourself, you know, is that whatever the function is that you're looking to serve, is that the best way or is there another way that might even be more useful, right? That is not necessarily through that story, but in a more flexible way, you know, oriented differently. And so I think, Right. This book and this idea that delusions are something to listen to, to be curious about, to have compassion towards, um, is really a very helpful stance to be taking, you know, not just with your five-year-old, not just with your partner, but with yourself. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you think so. I, I do I do think it is. I think and I, you know, you can see it on a global, not to go too far into that, but you can see with 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 the internet, with you know, misinformation, disinformation, uh, being so easy now and, and con- conspiracy theory being 
so widespread and so easily disseminated, having that voice in your head <laughs> telling, you know, unhooking from store or just, just trying to think in you, even if it's only about your own, your own fixed false beliefs. I think that could have a knock-on effect in terms of how you relate to somebody in your family who, you know, has fallen deep into a conspiracy theory. You know, I think I think it could have big. Uh, it could it could kind of go from from domestic into something quite quite powerful if if a lot of us did that in our in our own with our own fixed false beliefs. Oh, yeah, kind of practice it. Thank you so much, Victoria, for for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Oh, well, I have a, I have a website, victoriashepherd.org, and um, I'm doing various online talks. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I love that conversation. Thank you so much. It's so interesting to, to hear your expertise kind of within the um, historical stories, how they sit in relation to your practice is fascinating for me. So thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. If you love to nerd out about books that offer wisdom on living well, join our Psychologist Off the Clock book club. We meet the second Thursday of each month at noon Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. In addition to the monthly book club meetings, you'll get a newsletter with tips, have the chance to meet some of our authors in person, and you get to vote on upcoming books that we'll discuss. To join, all you need to do is email us at offtheclockpsych at gmail.com with book club in the subject line, or you can link to us through the offers and events page at offtheclockpsych.com. We hope you join us for some book love and fun. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.